Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! My daughter was there. Every day that passes is a danger to their lives. I was there. My daughter was there. Do not abandon the hostages. We must act now. A deal is required today. Bring them home now! Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing growing calls for another Gaza ceasefire after Israeli troops mistakenly shot dead three Israeli soldiers who were shirtless and Israeli hostages who were shirtless and waving a white flag. This comes as Israel continues to target hospitals, refugee camps, and journalists in Gaza. On Friday, Samar Abu Dhaka a reporter from Al Jazeera, bled to death after being injured in an Israeli drone strike on a U.N. school in Khan Yunis. Israeli forces prevented ambulances and rescue workers from reaching him for five hours as he bled to death. This is a new crime against Palestinian journalists that adds up to the crimes of the Israeli occupation. The killing of the colleague Samir and preventing the ambulances from reaching him is a new crime carried out by the occupation forces by targeting this colleague, the cameraman who was on duty. Al Jazeera is filing a complaint with the International Criminal Court calling the targeting of journalists a war crime. We'll speak with Maron Bashira of Al Jazeera. Then, as some 200 countries at COP28 agree to phase down fossil fuels, nations are facing pressure to block new oil and gas projects. Climate groups in the U.K. filed a lawsuit to block a massive new oil field in the North Sea, saying it violates obligations to target net zero carbon emissions. We'll go to London to speak with The Guardian's senior climate reporter, Nina Lakani. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's continuing its deadly attacks across the Gaza Strip, with mass casualties reported in densely populated areas, including the Jabalia and Nusrat refugee camps. As the death toll in Gaza nears 19,000, a new Human Rights Watch report accuses Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war, which is a war crime. Human Rights Watch says, quote, Israeli forces are deliberately blocking the delivery of water, food and fuel while willfully impeding humanitarian assistant, assistance, apparently raising agricultural areas and depriving the civilian population of objects indispensable to their survival. The damning HRW report comes as another road crossing into Gaza was open this weekend. But the Karam Abu Salem or Karam Shalom crossing had only allowed 24 trucks carrying medical supplies and fuel to enter as of earlier today. The trucks are required to go through an Israeli checkpoint, effectively delaying aid that used to pass much more freely through the Rafah crossing, when 500 trucks a day were going through. 
Pope Francis has condemned Israeli what he calls terrorism after an Israeli soldier shot and killed two Christian women, an elderly woman and her adult daughter who tried to save her at a Catholic church in Gaza City Sunday. Displaced Christian families have been sheltering at the Holy Family Latin Parish in Gaza City, which came under intense Israeli bombardment over the weekend. Israel also continues to target hospitals across Gaza. On Sunday, an Israeli tank shelled the maternity building at the Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunis, killing a 13-year-old girl and injuring several others. In Gaza City, there are reports of continuous gunfire at Al-Shifa Hospital, a team from the World Health Organization that was able to deliver limited relief supplies to Al-Shifa Saturday described the hospital's emergency ward as a bloodbath. This largest referral hospital here in Gaza has become a trauma stabilization point. They can only provide the most basic care for people with very serious injuries and very serious illnesses. There are women delivering in these common spaces that are just absolutely packed to the brim. Uh, most patients are on the floor. A few are in beds and stretchers behind me. Uh, the emergency department is just covered in blood and there are very few staff. Uh, children are being treated on the floor for serious injuries, for burns, for open wounds. The Palestinian health ministry has called for an urgent investigation into reports that Israeli forces bulldozed tents housing displaced Palestinians in the courtyard of the Kamal Adwan hospital, crushing people to death inside their makeshift shelters. This comes just days after Israeli troops rounded up men and boys at the hospital, including medical staff. Among those detained was hospital director Dr. Ahmed Al-Khalut. They raided the building. They took all the employees for investigation. Also, the injured people were being investigated. There were six bodies and a 60-year-old patient who died. They took these bodies. I don't know what they did with them. According to the employees, they burnt the bodies. Al Jazeera is filing a complaint with the International Criminal Court over the killing of photojournalist Samar Abu Dhaka, who bled to death over the course of more than five hours Friday after he was injured in an Israeli drone strike. He was hit while covering the aftermath of Israeli strikes and the U.N. school sheltering displaced people in Khan Yunis. Israeli forces reportedly prevented rescue workers from reaching Abu Dhaka, at one point firing on an ambulance. The same attack injured Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael Dadu. They were working together. Al Dadu, in October, lost 12 members of his family, including his wife, his daughter, his son and his grandchild in an Israeli airstrike. Elsewhere, Palestinian journalist Mohammed Balusha was shot in the thigh Saturday in an apparent attack by an Israeli sniper. He was wearing a helmet and press badge when he was fired on. Balusha's previous reporting about the deaths of premature infants in the neonatal intensive care unit of Gaza besieged Al Nasser Children's Hospital drew international attention. In occupied East Jerusalem, photojournalist Mustafa Akharouf, who works for the Turkish Anadolu outlet, was hospitalized Friday after he was severely beaten by Israeli border police. Akharouf had been taking photographs outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque when officers pointed their weapons at him, then threw him to the ground and began beating and kicking him. The attack was caught live on CNN.
We'll have more on Israel's attacks on journalists later in the broadcast. Israel's military says it's investigating why its soldiers shot and killed three Israeli hostages on Friday as they approached troops in Gaza City begging for help. An Israeli military official said Sunday the three men were shirtless, with one of them waving a white flag. When troops opened fire on the men, in violation of Israeli military rules of engagement, makeshift signs written in Hebrew reading SOS and help three hostages were hung on a building near the spot where the three men were shot dead. News of the killing sparked mass protests in Tel Aviv over the weekend. On Saturday, released captives demanded the Israeli government act decisively to free the more than 100 remaining hostages held in Gaza. This is former hostage Daniela Loni. My daughter was there. Every day that passes is a danger to their lives. I was there. My daughter was there. Do not abandon the hostages. We must act now. A deal is required today. Bring them home now! This comes amidst reports the head of the Israeli spy agency Mossad met with the Qatari prime minister in Oslo over the weekend to discuss the possibility of relaunching talks to release the remaining hostages. U.S. Secretary of Defense is now in Tel Aviv, Lloyd Austin. In a significant shift, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron and German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach called for a sustainable ceasefire in a joint article in the Sunday Times. The pair said efforts should be focused on a two-state solution after the assault comes to an end. The U.K. and Germany had previously declined to call for a ceasefire and abstained from voting last week on the U.N. General Assembly's ceasefire resolution. Also on Sunday, the French foreign minister, Catherine Colonna, called for an immediate and durable truce while meeting with her Israeli counterpart, Elie Cohen, in Tel Aviv, saying, quote, too many civilians are being killed in Gaza. This comes as Defense Secretary Austin arrived in Israel earlier today, where he's expected to focus talks on transitioning to a lower-intensity war. Austin traveled to Israel from Kuwait, where he paid his respects after the death of Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmad al-Sabah, the emir of Kuwait, who is buried Sunday. Meanwhile, the U.N. Security Council's voting today on a new resolution calling for a, quote, urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access in the Gaza Strip. In the United States, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump's former lawyer, has been ordered to pay $148 million in damages to two former Georgia election workers he defamed after the 2020 election. Giuliani falsely accused Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shea Moss of ballot tampering, leading to harassment and threats against the two women by Trump supporters. This is Shea Moss speaking after the verdict on Friday. The flame that Giuliani lit with those lies and passed to so many others to keep that flame blazing changed every aspect of our lives. Our homes, our family, our work, our sense of safety, our mental health, and we're still working to rebuild. It's not clear whether Giuliani will be able to pull together the money and how much the two women will end up receiving. Giuliani has vowed to appeal.
Donald Trump has intensified his hate speech and attacks on immigrants ahead of Iowa's Republican presidential primary next month. Trump spoke at a rally in New Hampshire Saturday. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia. If reelected president, Trump has vowed to soar mass deportations and enact many of his previous anti-immigrant policies. The White House condemned Trump's remarks as fascist and said he was, quote, parroting Adolf Hitler. But President Biden has also been widely criticized for perpetuating border and immigration restrictions similar to Trump's, including asylum bans, detention and large scale deportations in Ohio. Prosecutors have criminally charged a woman for having a miscarriage at home, sparking widespread outrage. Brittany Watts, a black woman, was told by her doctor that her 21-week pregnancy was non-viable. Although abortion is legal in Ohio until 22 weeks, Watts was not able to have her labor induced over hospital concerns about potential legal issues. She had a miscarriage at home in her bathroom. After the miscarriage, Watts became ill and was treated in the hospital where a nurse called the police after Watts told her she had to dispose of the contents of her miscarriage. Brittany Watts, who was still sick and grieving the loss of her pregnancy, was questioned by a police officer in her hospital room. Two weeks later, Ohio authorities charge Watts with felony abuse of a corpse, which carries a possible sentence of a year in prison. Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic has declared victory after his right-wing populist party appeared to be on course for an absolute majority in Serbia's parliament after a snap election Sunday. Opposition candidates accused Vucic's ruling party of vote rigging and voter intimidation and said it would lodge official complaints with the state election commission. In Argentina, Human rights advocates warn of a looming crackdown by the government of the far-right, newly elected president, Javier Millet, to suppress anticipated protests in response to Millet's economic reforms and the drastic devaluation of the Argentine currency. The plan targets the blockade of roads and major highways, while Millet's security minister said last week protesters would be surveilled with video, digital or manual means. The move was condemned by leaders across Latin America. This is Mexican President AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Don't fall into any provocation. Nonviolence and civil peaceful resistance are politically effective. Don't expose yourself to danger. Avoid harassment. But that does not mean not protesting. And Chilean voters have rejected a new draft of the Constitution proposed by conservative lawmakers to replace the Pinochet dictatorship-era charter. Sunday's vote came over a year since Chileans also rejected a separate draft put together by progressives that would have expanded indigenous rights, abortion access, and addressed the climate crisis. The conservative proposal could have further restricted reproductive rights. Chilean President Gabriel Boric said Sunday his government will not attempt to change the Constitution for a third time. 
The constitutional referendum was supposed to bring hope, but it generated frustration and even wariness in a big part of the population. We cannot ignore this. Politics is so weak, and it is essential that these results have an immediate effect. Without any more delays nor excuses, we'll focus everyone's work to create deals and solutions Chile needs for education, security, economic, and social issues. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we'll speak to Marwan Bashara, senior political analyst at Al Jazeera. We'll talk about the visit of U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. We'll talk about what they call the day after and also the killing of his colleague, Samar Abu Dhaka. This is Democracy Now! Back in a minute. Fallen, performed by Shirley Hayden and Carla Blay, the jazz pianist and composer who passed away in October. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel is intensifying its attacks across Gaza as pressure grows on Israel to support another ceasefire. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reports the head of the Mossad, Israel's intelligence service, has met with the prime minister of Qatar and CIA chief William Burns in Poland. Talks between the Mossad and Qatar also took place this weekend in Norway. Meanwhile, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has arrived in Tel Aviv for talks. This comes as Israel continues to carry out attacks across Gaza, targeting hospitals, schools and refugee camps. Authorities in Gaza say an Israeli attack on the Jabalia refugee camp killed 110 people on Saturday. Israel has also raided the Kamal Adwan hospital, where doctors say Israeli bulldozers crushed Palestinians to death, including wounded patients who were living in tents in the hospital's courtyard. Israel's also attacked Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City and the Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing growing calls to secure the release of the remaining Israeli hostages in Gaza after Israeli forces mistakenly shot dead three Israeli hostages who managed to escape captivity in northern Gaza. The three men, who were all shirtless, were shot as they cried for help in Hebrew while holding up a white flag. Meanwhile, Israel continues to attack Palestinian journalists. On Friday, Al Jazeera journalist Samar Abu Dhaka was killed after an Israeli drone struck a U.N. school in Khan Yunis, where displaced Palestinians were being sheltered. In a statement, Al Jazeera said, quote, following Samer's injury, 
He was left to bleed to death for over five hours as Israeli forces prevented ambulances and rescue workers from reaching him, denying the much-needed emergency treatment, unquote. This is Ibrahim Kanan, a reporter for Agad in Gaza. This is a horrific crime, a direct target. The first missile hit Summer, and he tried to crawl for 200 meters, but the Israeli warplanes hit him again and directly, so he became a martyr, and his body was cut into pieces. This is a crime day and night against journalists and against the media outlets who are working to reveal the Israeli occupation crimes in Gaza Strip. Al Jazeera says it will ask the International Criminal Court to investigate the killing of Sama Abu Dhaka. He was working with his colleague, Wael Zadu, the head of Al Jazeera in Gaza, who was injured in the same drone strike. They were reporting from the school together. Wael was able to walk to a hospital dazed to receive medical attention. He already had lost his wife, son, daughter, and grandson in an earlier Israeli attack. We begin today's show with Marwan Bashara, Al Jazeera's senior political analyst, longtime Palestinian journalist and author. His books include Palestine, Israel, Peace or Apartheid, Prospects for Resolving the Conflict. He's joining us from the studios of Al Jazeera in Doha. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Marwan. We welcome you back. Um, if you can start off, um, since you're there at Al Jazeera, by talking about um, the International Criminal Court complaint that Al Jazeera has filed after the death of a beloved cameraman who's worked with so many Al Jazeera journalists there, was working with the head of Al Jazeera in uh, Gaza at the time with Wael Dadu. Talk about what happened to him and just what it's like to walk the halls of Al Jazeera right now. As I watched Al Jazeera over the weekend, every hour, the uh, tributes to him, the video, the photos of him, his colleagues remembering him, his family crying out for him. Well, as you know, this is not the first time we go through this. We've gone through it a number of times already, mourning our uh, colleagues, the death of our colleagues, and the death of their families. Uh, they are our family, and their families are also our extended family. And that's just been going on for too long. We've covered too many wars. I've personally been in since the first Gaza war back in 2008-2009. We've gone through four wars like that. Uh, and only a couple of years ago, one of our colleagues, as you know, Shirin Abake, was killed in the Janine refugee camp. So this is all too close to home. I mean, you know, every day we live the tragedy uh, of the death of uh, several hundreds uh, in Gaza the past 10 weeks. But when it comes to our very own, I guess it's human nature, uh, right? It's, uh, you just can't, uh, can't ignore it, can't, uh, uh, can't go on uh, without uh, being preoccupied with it and, preoccupied with the feelings uh, of those uh, loved ones uh, that continue uh, to endure uh, the um, the bombings, the inhumane bombings that we've seen 
uh, in Gaza and the uh, rest of Palestine. So it's a it's a it's a somber uh, atmosphere. But people here just, I guess, plow ahead. Uh, there's no other option uh, as as countless people die and countless families suffer without shelter, without medical treatment, even without food. Um, it's it's just uh, the tragedy so, that we just have to live through every day and report on. Let's day. let's talk about that issue of food. You have this new Human Rights Watch report that's out that's accusing Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war, saying Israeli forces are deliberately blocking the delivery of water, food and fuel while willfully impeding humanitarian assistance, apparently raising agricultural areas, depriving the civilian population of objects indispensable to their survival. This is Carl Scow, the deputy executive director of the U.N. World Food Program. Speaking to reporters last week in New York after a recent visit to Gaza. What we found there uh, was that half of the population uh, are starving. Uh, the, uh, the grim reality is also that nine out of ten people uh, uh, are not eating enough, are not eating every day and don't know uh, where the next meal is going to come from. We are ready to deliver uh, to another million people within a couple of weeks, uh, should the conditions uh, allow. And let me reiterate that caveat that should those conditions allow, which would be opening of more crossings and uh, a humanitarian ceasefire to be able to reach um, uh, people across uh, the Strip. Director of, uh, Deputy Executive Director of the UN World Food Program, he says nine out of ten people are not easing and eating enough in Gaza. I mean, in the past, with all of Gaza's problems, um, hunger was not one of them. Uh, can you talk about the significance of this and also this latest news? I mean, even as we're broadcasting these attacks on one hospital after another, I mean, Abu Dhaka and Wael Dadu were covering the strike on the U.N. school in Khan Yunus when Al-Dhaka was, Abu Dhaka was killed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, just as a reminder to your viewers, there was also a report by Oxfam on October 23rd. That's, only, that's also uh, just two weeks after the war started in Gaza or on Gaza, where it also spoke about the weaponization of hunger. Because this has actually been going on since day one, since October 8, when uh, defense minister, so-called defense minister, minister of war, Yoav Galant, if you remember, uh, made his uh, infamous threat by saying, we're going to cut uh, their uh, their food, their fuel, their electricity, uh, basically denying the Palestinians of every uh, basic need. It's part of the collective punishment uh, that Israel decided from day one to impose on the Palestinian, which, of course, is a war crime. But that's been the nature uh, of the war, because right after he said that he's going to deny the Palestinians in Gaza all of these, he said they are human animals. It, this was basically an intent for genocide. Because right uh, after he did uh, make those infamous declarations, the president of Israel, Mr. Herzog, also came up with his statements about the fact, to his view, there are no innocents in Gaza. No innocents in Gaza. And that was followed by the prime minister, Netanyahu, who said uh, something about uh, an analogy with some biblical times comparing the Palestinian to the Amalek, and hence, uh, basically saying that uh, Israel will go after their families, their parents, the children, even the infants and their families. 
So we have the three leading Israeli officials basically admitting in public once and again active Where? punishment against Palestinians in general in Gaza. So, Marwan, uh, if you can talk about what's happening, the increasing isolation of Israel and the United States supporting Israel. You have yet another vote today in the U.N. Security Council around a ceasefire. You have the British and German foreign ministers calling for a ceasefire, further isolating the U.S., which blocked a ceasefire at the U.N. Security Council. Um, Lloyd Austin is in Tel Aviv meeting with the Israeli leadership. If you can shed light on, you know, Netanyahu, after the killing of the three Israeli hostages, um, held a news conference. He is under enormous pressure right now to put the hostages at the top. You've got negotiations going on, apparently, in Norway between the Qatari and Mossad officials. And now William Burns, head of central intelligence, is in Poland to meet with the Qatari officials. Talk about all that's happening right now. Um, Netanyahu not wanting to end this war right now. And there is a question about, since he's facing one criminal trial after another himself, whether once this ends and there's a real evaluation done, he could end up in jail himself. So putting that off. Well, OK, so let's try quickly to dissect uh, all of this very complicated issue. Let me just start by a quick I'm not going to call it correction, but um, just, uh, uh, you know, shed the light on the German-British position. They have not called for an immediate ceasefire. They called for a sustained ceasefire, which is the opposite of an immediate ceasefire, because basically they said it's not anything that we, we think of that will happen anytime in the near future. When, this, when they mention sustained, which means the circumstances have to be suitable, which basically very close to the American position. Unfortunately, the European clients of the United States, for the time being, um, remain so clients of the United States following on the footsteps of the United States, basically to the displeasure of the majority of their public opinion, also like that of the public opinion of the United States, apparently. But clearly, uh, the Biden administration wants to beautify the genocide in Gaza. I think they're being embarrassed because the reports coming out of Gaza, the images, the suffering, and all of that is reaching American public and the Western public in general. And they need to, you know, give the impression that they're doing something. Hence, they're sending these invoices to the region and writing articles and so on and so forth to at least prove that they are trying to do something. While, in fact, in reality, the United States continue to subsidize this war, manage this war, because we see Lloyd Austin sitting along with Yoav and the rest of the Israeli generals. And they're also, of course, as we know, sent the two aircraft carriers and the nuclear submarines to the area, hence shielding Israel, not just militarily, but also at the United Nations, committing $14 billion uh, to Israel's war effort. So all in all, the United States continue to unconditionally support Israel while claiming to distance itself from the intensive phase of the war, claiming that they want to phase out to something different, right? So that's what we have for the time being. But the fact of the matter is that until today, 10 weeks later, the United States is yet to condemn Israel in public, its war crimes in Gaza, yet to distance themselves from those war crimes that have been reported once and again that are taking place in Gaza. All what they're saying is 
that Israel should try to minimize because too many Palestinians have died over the past uh, 10 weeks. And now when they talk about the phase out, and here this is a very, very interesting fact that we see. They're saying Israel should perhaps target Hamas fighters, Hamas tunnels, and assassinate their leaders. That's what they're saying. So it begs the question, if this is the way to fight Hamas, why did they go on and destroy Gaza, leading to tens of thousands of casualties the past 10 weeks? There's clearly another way to fight this war, which is going after Hamas, not going after Gazans. But from the beginning, uh, Amy, and this is, again, very important to underline, is the fact that Gaza has been the target of this war, not Hamas. And if you look at the statistics, Gazans, the journalists, the doctors, the nurses, the teachers, the academics, the children have been the main victims of this war. Hamas fighters, Hamas militants have been the collateral damage in this war. For the past 10 weeks, it was Gaza that being decimated. It's civil infrastructure being decimated. It's been a war on hospitals, on schools, on mosques, and yes, a war on children. And yet it was unconditionally supported by the United States and other Western powers. And we haven't heard a single retraction for that support. And it's still being shielded at the United Nations. 153 members called for an immediate ceasefire. And what did the United States do? Voted against it. 13 members of the UN Security Councils voted for an immediate ceasefire. Britain abstained. The United States vetoed the resolution. The United States and Britain, until today, they sit isolated in the international community. So when President Biden tells a small group of people in Washington that Israel is perhaps losing the public support, what public support? What international public support? A majority in America, to my knowledge, ask for a ceasefire. A majority of the American out are the Biden administration and his lackeys in London and Berlin. The rest of the international community, including the absolute majority of everyone in this region, wants a ceasefire. And just quickly to cap that, we just interviewed a number of people in Gaza, in the streets in Gaza, asked them, what do you think about Lloyd Austin coming to the area? They said something to the fact, oh my God, this means we're going to be bombed again and again the next few days. Because think about that. Since Biden landed his, in the middle of October, every time an American official showed up in Israel, Israel had intensified the bombings. After, bombing, after Biden came, the land invasion started. And every visit by Blinken or, or Sullivan or Lloyd Austin, we've seen an intensification of the bombings of the civilian infrastructure of Gaza, of the residential buildings in Gaza. That's been the case. That's been the reality. There is no other interpretations of it. So the, the, the diagram, the, the, the process, if you will, shows unconditional American support, despite the various acrobatic verbal diarrhea that comes out of Western capital about, well, we're not very happy about too many Palestinians dying. Well, how many is enough exactly for them to stop Israel from continuing? Because Israel couldn't launch this war couldn't sustain this war, couldn't survive in the region like this without American support. In fact, Prime Minister Netanyahu says 
that we will win this war with the support of the United States. So imagine a country that, that, that calls itself the most important power in the Middle East is incapable of defeating a small guerrilla group that's been under siege for the past 17 years, and it requires the deployment of aircraft carriers and the financial and military power of the world superpower. And yet, until today, it still insists it's not even done with half of the job. Because despite the tens of thousands of casualties, despite the death of more than 7,000 children, only a fraction, a fraction of Hamas fighters have been killed in this war. It all goes to tell you that the end game and the ob military objectives, none of them have been reached despite the genocide that continues to unravel in Palestine. So Netanyahu holds this news conference on Saturday uh, after the killing of the three Israeli hostages uh, in Gaza. And he says we have to intensify the war um, to make uh, Hamas release the hostages. What is your response to this? Clearly at odds with um, even Israeli public opinion and the idea that these three men— who were killed by Israeli forces, uh, Netanyahu saying that his own forces violated the rules of war. Was this any different or any surprise than the thousands, the way thousands of Palestinians have been treated, many also holding up a white flag? The surprise here is that these hostages were not treated differently than Palestinians. Absolutely. Shirtless white flag, and shouting in Hebrew. And yet, they were murdered by their own. Which tells you, according now to a good number of Israelis speaking out, that there are no rules of engagements. It's crap. It's humbug. There are no rules of engagement in Gaza. You shoot whatever moves in Gaza. And yes, it's odd, because the Israelis have been doing exactly that since day one. Now, as you said, it's also odd, his arguments about the about the captives, because this is the most ridiculous arguments of all arguments. We've known from the beginning that they said our the aim of this war is first to defeat Hamas, second to release the captives. And they kind of connected both by saying, if we intensify the war, Hamas will be pressured to release the captives. It never did. So they had to resort to diplomacy, asking the Qataris, the Egyptians and the Americans to help. And they did. And, the, and through diplomacy, they were able to release some of the hostages. And then they went back to war the day after. Now they want to try it again. Well, the news is that Hamas will no longer accept humanitarian forces. Hamas now insists on permanent ceasefire and the withdrawal of the Israeli forces from Gaza. Otherwise, what incentive does Hamas have in order to release any more of the especially military captives that it has uh, in Gaza, because if the Israelis, with the support of the United States, are going to continue the bombings the next day, and they insist that the war objective is to kill Hamas fighters, there's zero incentives why they would release anyone. So today, we, in this, we are in the Netanyahu logic, and the Netanyahu logic is neither in the interest of Israel or the United States. And Biden knows that. Apparently, he got a file from Israel through his intelligence agencies that says something to the fact, according to Haaretz, the Israeli mainstream paper, that Netanyahu has a vested, has a personal vested interest in prolonging the war. Because he 
you know, as a political criminal indicted in corruption charges, come war criminal. He has a vested interest to prolong the war as much as he can in order to improve his chances for re-election. In fact, he just put in the military fatigue and started making his populist slogans, the one that we know them, saying that only he can prevent the emergence of a, a Palestinian state, that only he can stand up to the United States, and hence the Israelis need to elect, uh, to elect him again. So Netanyahu, as a person, the military establishment as well, have vested interest to continue with this, with this war. Marwan Bashara, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Al Jazeera's senior political analyst speaking to us from Doha, Qatar, born in Nazareth in the occupied West Bank. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up, Nina Lakani, the senior climate justice reporter of The Guardian. Stay with us. E cantar canções Ninguém passa mais Brincando feliz E nos corações Saudades e cinzas Foi o que restou Pelas ruas o que se vê a gente que nem se vê, que nem se sorri, se beija e se abraça e sai caminhando, dançando e cantando cantigas de amor. E no entanto é preciso cantar. March of Ash Wednesday by Carlos Lira, who just passed away. The Brazilian musician died at the age of 90. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. After a decade-long campaign, climate activists say more than 1,600 institutions have now cut ties with the fossil fuel industry and divested some $41 trillion in assets. This comes as nearly 200 countries agreed to a deal at the COP28 UN Climate Summit to phase down fossil fuels, replacing language calling for a phase-out. Now, a growing number of Democrats are calling on President Biden to stop massive new fossil fuel developments. Meanwhile, in Britain, just days after COP28 wrapped up, climate groups filed a lawsuit to block the development of the massive new Rosebank oil field in the North Sea, saying approval of the project violates Britain's legal obligations to target net zero carbon emissions. For more, we go to London to speak with The Guardian's senior climate justice reporter, Nina Lakani, who we last saw when we were in Dubai as we both covered COP28. Her latest piece is headlined, Indigenous People and Climate Justice Groups Say COP28 Was Business As Usual. 
Nina, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why don't you talk about the fallout of the U.N. Climate Summit, you know, the head of it, um, uh, the head of ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Corporation, Sultan al-Jaber, um, who is also the president of the COP and the taking out of any language of fossil fuel phase out, making it phase down, uh, what all of this means. Um, nice to be with you, Amy. Um, I mean, I think um, that last piece you just mentioned, I think that's sort of a summary, I guess, of um, where we got to. I think on that last day, um, there were some very happy countries and some very happy industries. So the US, the, the biggest polluting countries and um, industries in the world, including the US, the UK, the EU, Canada, Australia, Denmark, Norway, um, and, and the fossil fuel industry itself were extremely happy with the result. But the language we ended up with isn't even as good as you're, you, you know, as you're saying. All it says is that there will be a transition away from fossil fuels. There is no timeline. There is, n there is nothing more concrete than that. And vitally, and why climate justice sort of advocates and experts and, in, in, um, Indigenous communities and frontline communities is are, you know, are very much of the view that this is business as usual, is that there is nothing in there about differentiate. There is no differentiated responsibility. There is no language that basically um, that acknowledges the historic responsibility of rich developed countries like the US and the UK and others in the current climate catastrophe. And it places no, you know, like no sort of um, extra responsibility on them to get rid of fossil fuels first or any timeline at all. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, again, through pressure from the US and the EU and others, there's actually a huge get out clause. They talk, there's a paragraph that says that um, transition fuels um, will be, um, are okay. And by that, they're talking about gas, right? As, you, as we know, and you've reported on in Democracy Now!, that the Biden administration has been expanding. It, you know, the US is the biggest oil and gas producer in the world this year by a long way. It also has the plans to expand oil and gas, gas at a much greater and faster scale than any other country in the world. Now, including this transi trans transition fuel, which, by the way, is language that comes from the fossil fuel industry in the text, it basically is a get out clause to all those countries who are wanting to, you know, to exploit and extract their gas, um, their, their, you know, their gas resources. Um, and just to add one more thing, again, on pressure from the same countries and the same industries, there is an explicit um, um, sort of um, use. They don't use the word unabated, but they do say that um, you know, they give a big sort of um, a big shout out, really, to sort of um, niche, unproven technologies like carbon capture and storage, storage like hydrogen, like geoengineering, which are expensive. They don't work very well, if at all. And it basically is going to green light further expansion of oil, gas and coal with the proviso that rich countries will have money for these tech expensive technologies to minimize or to to um to you know to lessen the greenhouse gas impact all of that together is why um a lot of you know the small island nations the african group among many other countries felt bullied into signing the consensus the so-called consensus agreement at the end but really have been left 
without any means, without any recognition that developed countries, those that got us into this mess, are going to be the ones that shoulder the burden of funding for the means of implementation to get us out of this mess, to fund a just transition. Really, equity is not anywhere to be seen in that final agreement that we got. So if you can talk about your latest piece, which involves indigenous voices and what is happening for the global south and who needs to be heard. And if you feel that the fact that they even reference fossil fuels for the first time in a final COP document uh, is in any way uh, an achievement, a success, Nina. I mean, I, you know, I mean, there's lots of ways to define historic, right, I guess, or lots of ways to see that word. I mean, it is historic in a sense. It's the first time fossil fuels are mentioned after 28 cops, more than, you know, after three decades of, um, of you know, of, of scientists, climate scientists telling us that and warning us that fossil fuels were the primary major driver of um, of the climate crisis, right? So yes, it's historic. It's tragically historic that it's taken this long to get into um, into sort of the COP text. Um, but what does that mean, right? Words are just words if there is no means of implementa- implementation. In the Paris Agreement, right, there is, which is a bi- legally binding treaty, it is very clear that developed countries, those that got rich from... Um, um, extracting um, fossil fuels, um, like the US, like the UK and others, ha- have a differentiated res- responsibility to provide um, developing countries with the means of implementation for mitigation. So that's sort of transitioning away from fossil fuels to renewable energies, climate adaptation and other climate finance. And that, so that means finance, it means um, technology transfer, it means capacity building, Without the means of implementation, these are just words, right? You know, if, you know, developing countries are already facing trillions of dollars in sort of in, in a funding gap in order to, um, in order to sort of finance climate adaptation. On top of that, $400 billion a year in loss and irreversible loss and damage. There is nothing in this that, you know, there is nothing concrete, direct in this final text. That um, because because developed countries pushed and pushed to get it out, they refused to budge on this to to make it there. You know, to make it clear that they are the ones that are responsible and must help developing countries transition away from fossil fuels. Um, let me give you an example. So, so, the, so, so say so take um, Malaysia, right? Malaysia Malaysia has a national oil company. Twenty percent of Malaysia's um, um, national budget, the money that its government uses to spend uh, to, um, for education, for health and other public services comes from its national oil company, right? Um, take Mozambique, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world has huge amount of um, gas. How are we going to tell these countries or why should these countries stop extracting their oil and gas, right? How can they possibly do that when they're still unable and are still trying to meet the basic needs of their population. They have to be helped um, to, you know, they have to be given the help to transition away, to leave these fossil fuels in the ground and to be able to continue to develop their own countries for the best of their people. We have, you know, otherwise they're just not going to be able to do that. And what developing countries have been saying for years and are still saying is that 
developed countries who benefited from extracting all these fossil fuels now want us to do more and more and more, right, when they're not willing to do even the bare minimum. Why is why has the Biden administration greenlighted the Willow Project? Why is it greenlighting massive gas expansion projects, which, by the way, will be, a, you know, like a death sentence to communities down in the Louisiana coast, right? Why is, why is the US, which had already benefited so much um, from, from extracting fossil fuels, not willing to stop its own expansion, but is demanding that developing countries stop their, stop exploiting the resources that they have? There is nothing fair and is nothing equitable in that. So I want to turn to an unusual voice uh, at the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai. While we were there, we spoke to the head of the largest indigenous delegation in the history of the COP. Sonia Guadjajada is Brazil's first indigenous cabinet minister. She's the minister of indigenous peoples. And I asked her what she wanted to see coming out of this U.N. climate summit. This is what she said. For the indigenous peoples, we need to prepare for the road that we need to head down in order to reach COP30, which is going to be held in Belém in the Brazilian Amazon. We also need to prepare so that we can have a direct impact on the debates that unfold here at the COP. And oftentimes, we are not even close to it. It's very important that we indigenous peoples participate in these forums. And there's a group that is directly on top of this. So we are here so that indigenous peoples can have more space in decision making. And the general message is that we have little time left. The big leaders, government leaders, need not only to take on commitments here, but also to understand that we are in a state of emergency. In order to emerge from that state of emergency, Emergency. Investment is needed. Financing is needed. And protection so that we can all protect the planet. President Lula still has plans to do massive offshore oil drilling. As the first indigenous people's uh, minister, do you condemn this move? Are you weighing in on this? Do you support this? Look, in Brazil, we're at a moment of transition to clean energies as well. We're building that together. President Lula is committed to making that transition. And now we're using what is available to us, such as the wind and the water, so that we can emerge from the energy we're using today based on destruction and so that we can have renewable energy that protects the people's and that does not destroy the environment. So that's Sonia Guajajara, Brazil's first minister of indigenous peoples, a lifelong leader in Brazil's indigenous rights movement. Um, the historic federal ministry was established in January by Lula, the Brazilian president, to advance and protect the rights of indigenous people in Brazil. And Brazil— specifically Belém, is going mm -hmm. to be the site of not next year's uh, U.N. Climate Summit, but the following year. So they had one of the biggest delegations. In fact, yeah. I think their delegation outnumbered only two delegations, UAE and Brazil, outnumbered the number of fossil fuel lobbyists there were at That's this right. U.N. Climate Summit, right? 2,400. So yeah. I'm wondering— um, 
If you can talk about the significance of Brazil being um, host to a U.N. climate summit, also next year, the Petro State Azerbaijan uh, will be going to Baku. Um, and also the whole issue of what indigenous peoples face. And you in particular um, are an expert on this. Uh, you wrote the book about um, Berta Cáceres, the Honduran um, indigenous rights activist who was murdered in her home. Now Honduran authorities issuing an arrest warrant um, for the one of the heads, uh, the suspected mastermind of her murder. Um, uh, Danielle Atala Medense, the former financial manager of the hydroelectric company DESA. If you can talk about all of this. Okay. Um, so, I mean, let me just start, I guess, with um, something, you know, just, uh, I guess, a simple fact that sort of gives us context for all of what you're, you're talking about, Amy. You know, what is climate justice, right? You know, it, it you know, we are not all in this together. When it comes to the climate crisis, we are absolutely not all in this together. We didn't all contribute um, to, to, you know, in the same way or in the same amount to the climate crisis. We're not all impacted by it in the same way. And we are not all going to benefit from the solutions in the same way, right? That is the sort of inequity of where we're at in the climate crisis. So when it comes to Indigenous people, and I'm so glad you brought up the fossil fuel lobbyists, you're right. Fossil fuel lobbyists, outnumbered the official indigenous people sort of delegations by seven to one, right? Seven to one. There was there were one in 30 of the people that you and I saw walking through the these corridors of power at COP28 in Dubai were fossil fuel lobbyists. On top of that, you had big ag, big dairy lobbyists. You had others, others that were there sort of touting and promoting false tech solutions, others with vested in, um, interests. And many of them, and, and there were also lots of these um, groups like the API, the American Petroleum Institute, and ad agencies and PR companies that have a long inglorious track record in climate denialism and blocking climate action, right? That they, they had more access to this, to the sort of meeting rooms where decisions were being made, where negotiations were happening than indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples who are at the front line of the climate impacts that the world is facing. They are also the guardians of most of the biodiversity in the world. And they also are the reasons that the planet even still exists. I mean, indigenous peoples around the world from all different, in every corner of the planet, have lived, lived sustainably with their resources, didn't exploit them for profit, right? Didn't exploit them to get rich millennia since time memorial and so they're also and what they will what people will say to you from wherever they're from is that they have the solutions they have knowledge and they have the solutions that, that yet they are so rarely given a seat at the table they're so rarely part of a decision making um you know process now brazil you know is an ex is one of the few exceptions but I think in terms of um, President Lula and Brazil continues to, continuing to expand its fossil fuel, um, um, its fossil fuel extraction. I mean, it comes back to what I was saying before. Nina, Brazil, we have less than a minute. OK, I mean, you know, we cannot we cannot as sitting here in the US or the UK demand that countries like Brazil um, phase out fossil fuels, wean themselves off fossil fuels while we continue ourselves to expand and get rich from them. We have to, you know, there is. We have no moral, you know, authority to do that. The UK, the US, the developed countries have to go first, 
and they have to provide the means of implementation for Indigenous communities and for developing countries to transition away and to really take the climate action that the whole world needs. And finally, we have 20 seconds. If you want to comment on one of the heads of DESA uh, having an arrest warrant out for him for the murder of Berta Casas. That is huge news. Daniel Atalamidens is from one of the most powerful oligarchs in Honduras, politically and economically um, um, powerful. His father and his uncles what, were the majority shareholders in DESA. And Nina, so that is a, a tease for our post-show interview. We're going to post online at democracynow.org, along with our interview with Sonia Guadrujada, Nina Lakani of The Guardian. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.